Thank you, everybody, for uh, coming to our session. Uh, this is actually the second year that we've had the Peace and Justice uh, Study Group. John started us uh, last year, and I was just tickled to death that uh, Richard Hughes uh, contributed a paper. And as soon as he did, I said, oh, let's do a whole session around your paper, uh, because the paper was just uh, so significant. I, I would assume that you know who Richard Hughes is. Uh, uh, but let me, he uh, received his Ph.D. from the University of Iowa in 1972. Uh, he uh, did work at Abilene in uh, uh, church history. And he was at Pepperdine for many years. So my daughter was at Pepperdine. Uh, but perhaps never crossed paths. Okay, but I would say Richard is the premier church historian in the Restoration Movement. Uh, is that too much, James? That's a fair claim. Okay. Uh, so you're very lucky that uh, he's able to, to be with us and present. And today, uh, James is going, James Gorman is going to respond to the paper, as will I. James has uh, done a PhD at Baylor uh, University and is now a professor at Johnson University. I was just telling Richard that my daughter is about to go to Baylor for PhD studies in philosophy. Uh, my name is Paul Axton. This, the group that I'm with is Forging Plowshares. Uh, we are a group aiming to promote the peaceable kingdom to peace and justice. And so we will hopefully do a podcast. I did a podcast this morning with uh, Richard. And with his permission, I will put the talk today uh, on our online, and so uh, this is part of the the work that I'm doing in uh, Moberly, Missouri. But without any further ado, we have until 3:35. Uh, please welcome Richard Hughes. I've got to warn you this this paper has several renditions. There's a short rendition and a long rendition. <laughs> And we probably should be using the short rendition, but then this is the long rendition. So uh, hope you can stay awake through this. It will take a while to go through it. I'll read it as quickly as I can. If the heart of Jesus' preaching was his concern and compassion for disenfranchised and oppressed people, then the first step toward becoming his disciple is to listen carefully and attentively to what disenfranchised and oppressed people wish to tell us about the contours of their lives. In America, oppressed and marginalized black people in particular have testified almost unanimously to the twin realities of white supremacy on one hand and the racial failures of white Christianity on the other. The great abolitionist Frederick Douglass offers a case in point. Between the Christianity of this land and the Christianity of Christ, he wrote, I recognize the widest possible difference, so wide that to receive the one as good and pure and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad and corrupt and wicked. I love the pure, peaceable, and impartial Christianity of Christ. I therefore hate the corrupt slave-holding, women-whipping, cradle-plundering, partial and hypocritical Christianity of this land. Indeed, I can see no reason but the most deceitful one for calling the religion of this land Christianity at all. 
Some 100 years later, many white churches were still complicit in racial oppression. Leading Martin Luther King Jr. to ask regarding those churches, what kind of people worship there? Who is their God? By the late 20th and early 21st centuries, many young blacks were no longer content to critique the church. They simply voted with their feet and left. Ta-Nehisi Coates, for example, explained that the notion of white supremacy prompted his parents to reject all religious dogmas, Christian and otherwise. Quote, we spurned the Christian holidays marketed by the people who wanted to be white. We would not stand for their anthems. We would not kneel before their God. And so I had no sense that any just God was on my side. The meek shall inherit the earth meant nothing to me. The meek were battered in West Baltimore, stopped out at Walbrook Junction, bashed up on Park Heights, and raped in the showers of the city jail. There seems no point, and it would not serve us well, to rehearse the racial failures of America's churches at any great length here. But what will serve us is an honest and forthright recognition that what caused and sustained those failures on the ground were deep and far-reaching theological failures. While this essay addresses that issue in the context of American evangelicalism, I also want to pay attention to my own tradition, the Churches of Christ, which, while standing apart from evangelicalism for most of its history, has increasingly identified with the evangelical world since the 1960s. Regarding both traditions, I want to ask about the nature of the racist culture that seduced them, about the kind of theology that allowed that seduction to occur with such apparent ease, and about the kind of theology that can empower Christians of every stripe to resist the racist seductions of our culture and pursue justice and equality for oppressed and marginalized people. Regarding the Churches of Christ in particular, four vignettes from their history offer important clues into the nature of that tradition's theological failures with respect to race. First, Gospel Advocate Editor James Allen reported in 1925, and I'm quoting, many of the preachers, close quote, many, he says, of Churches of Christ belonged to the Ku Klux Klan. Some years later, J.E. Cho claimed that many ordinary members of Churches of Christ belonged to the Klan as well. Third, famed Churches of Christ preacher G.C. Brewer recalled that as a young man growing up in Tennessee in the early 20th century, quote, none of us thought of inviting Negroes into our homes as guests or sitting down to eat with them at the same table. We felt, as a matter of course, that they should have the same food we ate but they should eat in the kitchen or in the servant quarters. He continued, This was the condition that prevailed, and this we accepted as right and satisfactory, and then concluded that we were not prejudiced against Negroes. And fourth, Ann Moody reported that in the aftermath of the murder of Medgar Evers in Jackson, Mississippi in 1963, on the Sunday after uh, Evers' funeral, young black activists visited numerous churches in the city of Jackson. Moody recalled that, quote, at each one the churches had prepared for our visit with armed policemen, paddy wagons, and dogs. Interesting. Churches. On the second Sunday, the group visited the Church of Christ, where the ushers, quote, offered to give us cab fare to the Negro extension of the church. When the young blacks resisted that advice, the ushers threatened to call the police if we didn't leave. 
we decided to go. These four reports should set off in our heads the alarm bells of a theology gone badly awry. What kind of theology would allow self-professed followers of Jesus to hold membership in the Ku Klux Klan? What kind of theology would allow a disciple of Jesus to practice racial discrimination and then say with a straight face that we were not prejudiced against Negroes? And what kind of theology would allow Christians to refuse to worship with other believers, even to call the police if those, quote, others didn't leave? The answer to those questions is clear. A theology that offers believers no means of resistance against the bigotry and the failures of the popular culture. Before we explore the contours of such a weak and listless theology, we first must ask, what is it about American popular culture that pulls professed disciples of Jesus so easily into the sinkhole of racial bigotry and prejudice? The answer to that question is something that most white Americans, including most white American Christians, neither recognize nor understand, and something to which they typically give little or no thought, simply because it is hidden from their eyes, even though it pervades American culture. I'm speaking of the myth of white supremacy. When I use the word myth, I don't have in mind a story that is untrue, but rather a story that gives us meaning. John Westerhoff III helps us understand the meaning of myth when he writes, quote, we need a story to see in the dark, for stories are the imaginative way of ordering our experience. So when I speak of white supremacy, I'm not speaking of the Ku Klux Klan or other white nationalist groups that proclaim white supremacy from the rooftops. I'm speaking rather of virtually all white Americans, including myself, for the myth of white supremacy is the air we breathe, the water in which we swim, an ideology that is so deeply embedded in our common culture that we can escape its power and the power it wields over our minds and emotions with great difficulty, if at all. Many, while many whites might find this claim preposterous, even offensive, most black people, in my experience, acknowledge that claim as the central truth about the meaning of black life in the United States. If we wish to know the truth, therefore, we must listen carefully to their assessment of ourselves. <coughs> White supremacy, obviously, is not a story shared in common by all Americans. Most blacks understand that myth because they've suffered its bitter fruit and don't know no other way to explain that experience. Whites, on the other hand, embrace that myth but for the most part, do so unconsciously. Nothing in their experience, in our experience, has forced them to recognize the myth, much less to regard it as America's primal narrative. While David Billings, a white man, while David Billings' experience might have been more blatant and direct than that of most American whites, his story is, for the most part, typical. And there's a quote from David Billings. As a white person, even in my youth, I was taught that everything of significance that has happened in the United States had been accomplished by white people. I was brought up to think and see my white world as normal. Everyone else around me seemed to me to see the world in the same way. My worldview, shaped by this internalized sense of racial superiority, meant that I saw history, morality, the will of God, and even scientific truth as the special province of white people, usually white men. More than to laws or customs, my very understanding of myself 
was bound to the idea of white supremacy. Billings goes on to explain that in his world, whites were not self-reflective about race. But why should they have been? Some of them, perhaps many of them, had experienced hardship and persecution, but not a single negative dimension in their lives, neither poverty, nor harassment, nor brutal treatment, nor lack of opportunity, was due to the color of their skin. To the contrary, the color of their skin ensured that most of them would not face the same limitations that they themselves imposed on their African-American neighbors. And if it did fall their lot to face such constrictions, it would not be for the same reasons. There was simply no incentive for them, therefore, to reflect on what it meant to be white, on the privilege to which white skin entitled them, or on the myth of white supremacy, which they simply took for granted. And that is why white supremacy is so insidious. The proposition that white people are superior to black people is so embedded into our common culture that most whites take it for granted, seldom reflecting, if ever reflecting, on its pervasive presence or assessing its power in our lives. Blacks, on the other hand, have been forced to think deeply about the notion of white supremacy. They have been forced to discern it, to reflect upon it, and to understand it. For that myth alone could provide to their minds the rationale for the realities of slavery, for Jim Crow segregation, for beatings and lynchings and castrations, and the denial of equal opportunity in a nation that claimed that all men are created equal. W.B. Du Bois recalled that he first learned about white supremacy when, as he put it, quote, the shadow swept over me, and he found himself, quote, shut out from the world of whites by a vast veil. He wondered, why did God make me an outcast and a stranger in my own house? That experience led him to speak of what he called a double consciousness, this sense of always looking at oneself through the eyes of others, or measuring one's soul by the tape of a world that looks on in amused contempt and pity. Whatever feels his two-ness, an American and a Negro, two souls, two thoughts, two unreconciled strivings, two warring ideals in one dark body, close quote from Du Bois. Some years later, Richard Wright affirmed that the meaning of black life in America was deeply and profoundly bound up with, and this is a quote from Wright, deeply and profoundly bound up with race hate, rejection, ignorance, segregation, discrimination, slavery, murder, fiery crosses, and fear. Malifi Kiti Asante, you know Asante? Church of Christ boy, born Arthur Lee Smith, Valdosta, Georgia, now Malifi Kiti Asante, the father of Afrocentric studies at Temple University, described African Americans as the people of the wilderness. The wilderness, Asante wrote, is a metaphor for the feeling of economic, social, political, and professional abandonment that is often found in the inner cities, but can be found anywhere and everywhere bigotry creates the death of hope. Some of us, he continued, live in the deep inner recesses of the wilderness, from which it's almost impossible to escape. Others of us live on its shallow fringes, but we know that at any moment we can slip back into the depths. Malcolm X framed this reality in a somewhat different way. Here in America, Malcolm said, the seeds of racism are so deeply rooted in the white people collectively 
Their belief that they are superior in some way is so deeply rooted that these things are in the national white subconsciousness. This is Malcolm. When we hear statements like these, the myth of white supremacy nudges us to imagine that these are the sentiments of malcontents, of an ungrateful people, of cynics, of bitter critics of the American way of life. But when we respond in that way, we only bear witness to the power of white supremacy that continues to rule our minds and our emotions and to close our ears to the painful truths we really don't wish to hear. White supremacy has worked powerfully, not only on the bodies, but also on the minds of blacks in the United States. A young woman, one of my Lipscomb students two years ago, told how a teacher once asked her a question that pierced to the marrow of her being. The teacher said, Leslie, why do you always draw little white girls? Later that evening, my student recalled, the image of my teacher kneeling down to ask that impossible question stomped through my mind and raged through my ears like a violent storm. The weight of that question definitely splitting my mind and my heart. And then she said this, when I was in high school, and this young woman is probably 21 years old now, this recent student, when I was in high school, I would often do what many girls did. I would imagine myself years from now getting ready for work early in the morning. The house was quiet. I would be tranquil but moving quickly to beat the traffic. I'd check the mirror in the foyer before leaving straighten, to straighten my perfectly pressed collar, twist the ring on my wedding finger so the beautifully carved diamond would face just the right way. I'd check my long and silky hair for any strands that had fallen out of the elaborate style I'd wrapped it in. I checked my skin for imperfections. It was always the skin that cracked me, that pulled me away. It was always then that I realized the beautiful, successful, loved woman of my dreams was white. I have never felt more gut-wrenching shame than those moments when I was suddenly torn from my unreachable dream to face a reality that was impossible to ignore. I could not be white. I wasn't white. It's harrowing to live with the stress you can never escape, the fear that you will never be fully accepted. The experience of Malcolm X was like the experience of my student. When he was in the seventh grade in Lansing, Michigan, Malcolm recalled, I didn't really have much feeling about being a Negro because I was trying so hard in every way I could to be white. In her novel, The Bluest Eye, Toni Morrison tells a similar story about a young girl named Piccola, to whom, quote, it had occurred some time ago that if her eyes were different, that is to say, beautiful, she herself would be different. And so each night, without fail, she prayed for blue eyes. Fervently for a year she had prayed, and although somewhat discouraged, she was not without hope. To have something as wonderful as that happen would take a long, long time. In one way or another, Pecola's experience reflected reality for millions of America's blacks. Twenty-three years after writing that novel, Morrison reflected on its meaning. The bluest eye, she wrote, was my effort to say something about why she, that is Pecola, had not or possibly ever would have the experience of what she possessed and also why she prayed for so radical an alteration implicit in her desire 
was racial self-loathing. And 20 years later, I was still wondering how one learns that. Who told her? Who looked at her and found her so wanting, so small a weight on the beauty scale? Self-loathing indeed. James Baldwin picked up on that same theme when he wrote to his nephew about Baldwin's father, his nephew's grandfather. And Baldwin wrote, he had a terrible life. He was defeated long before he died because at the bottom of his heart, he really believed what white people said about him. Catherine Meeks, like Galifi Kitiasate, also a Pepperdine graduate, tells a similar story. Kathy's illiterate, illiterate father worked as a sharecropper in Arkansas, where Kathy grew up, and her family was very poor. She often wondered why, as a young woman, she, quote, could not go to the front window of the Dairy Queen or try on the new dress that I wanted or sit in the waiting room with white people in our little rural Arkansas town. But that was not the worst of it. When her brother Garland's appendix became infected, her father found someone to drive both of them to the nearest hospital in El Dorado, Arkansas. But because he was black, the hospital refused to treat Garland and instructed her father to drive him to the charity hospital in Shreveport, some 70 miles away. Quote, by the time my father could get someone to drive them there, Kathy recalls, Garland's appendix had become so infected, he was beyond saving. He died soon after arriving at the hospital. He was 12 years old. His role as a sharecropper rendered Meek's father powerless economically, and his black skin rendered him powerless in a world defined by the myth of white supremacy. His inability to save his son only heightened those feelings, and all those realities taken together transformed Kathy's father, as Kathy reports, into an angry and bitter man. Those kinds of experiences so common to blacks in the United States help us to understand why the black appraisal of the American nation is so different from that of most whites. The poet James Whitfield, 1822-1871, born in New Hampshire to free parents, by the way, not a slave, spoke for millions of American whites when he described black life in this country in the starkest of terms. Here's what he said. America, it is to thee, thou boasted land of liberty, it is to thee I raise my song, thou land of blood and crime and wrong, it is to thee thy native land from which is issued many a band to tear the black man from his soil and force him here to delve and coil, chained on your blood bemoistened sod, cringing beneath the tyrant's rod. If one is tempted to think Whitfield's judgment extreme, that white supremacy has never been as pervasive as he suggests, consider the role white supremacy played in the thinking of America's founders and other leaders of this republic. It's common knowledge that when the founders affirmed that all men are created equal, they limited that meaning to, of all men to all white men, not women, white men who held property. Further, the man who actually wrote the words, all men are created equal, Thomas Jefferson, offered something very different in his notes on the state of Virginia. There, Jefferson affirmed, and I'm quoting from Jefferson, 
that the blacks, whether originally a distinct race or made distinct by time and circumstance, are inferior to the whites in the endowments both of body and mind. And like the promise of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, Jefferson regarded the inferiority of black people as a self-evident truth, also grounded in nature. It is not their condition then, but nature which has produced the distinction, Jefferson wrote. Likewise, Abraham Lincoln, the man who signed the Emancipation Proclamation, affirmed this regarding blacks. I am not, nor ever have been, in favor of bringing about in any way the social and political equality of the white and black races. I am not, nor ever have been, in favor of making voters or jurors of Negroes, nor of qualifying them to hold office, nor to intermarry with white people. There is a physical difference between the white and black races which I believe will forever forbid the two races living together on terms of social and political equality. And inasmuch as they cannot so live, while they do, while they do remain together, there must be the position of superior and inferior, and I, as much as any other man, am in favor of having the superior position assigned to the white race. And Andrew Johnson, Lincoln's vice president and the man who succeeded him in office, wrote to Missouri Governor Thomas C. Fletcher that, quote, this is a country for white men, and by God, as long as I'm president, it shall be a government for white men. Some four years later, while still the president of Princeton University and before his election as president of the United States, Harper and Brothers published Woodrow Wilson's five-volume A History of the American People. There he repeated, Wilson repeated, the long-standing myth of the happy slaves. In the midst of the Civil War, Wilson wrote, great gangs of cheery Negroes worked in the fields. No distemper touched them. No breath of violence or revolt stirred in them. There was, it seemed, no wrong that they fretted under or wished to see righted. The smiling fields, not yet trodden by the feet of armies, still produced their golden harvest of grain under the hands of the willing slaves, Woodrow Wilson. He spoke, too, of the plain and wholesome simplicity of the planters' lives. But the blacks who became office holders during Reconstruction were, Wilson affirmed, men who could not so much as write their names and who knew none of the uses of authority except its insolence. Even though he was deeply critical of the terror the Ku Klux Klan wielded in the South following the war, he seemed to excuse the activity of Klansmen in the organization's earliest years as mere pranks. He spoke of, quote, the comrades who rode abroad at night when the moon was up, a white mask, a tall cardboard hat, the figures of man and horse sheeted like a ghost. He told how those night rides, quote, threw the Negroes into a very ecstasy of panic to see those sheeted Ku Klux move nearer them in the shrouded night, and how, quote, their comic fear stimulated the lads who excited it to many an extravagant prank. Once in the White House, Wilson resegregated the Federal Civil Service that had been integrated for years following Reconstruction and held in the White House a private screening of the film Birth of a Nation, a film that praised the rise of the Klan and symbolic of the, of the White's resurgence, of the White South's resurgence after Reconstruction. So 100 years later, in 2016, 81% of America's evangelical Christians voted to place in the seat of the presidency of the United States a man who had built his political career on the utterly false and disproven claim 
that the nation's first black president had been born in Kenya and therefore occupied the White House illegally, and a man who ran his presidential campaign on the promise that, quote, we're going to take the country back. Most black Americans understood that phrase to mean, we'll take the country back for white dominance and control. An interpretation validated by David Duke, former Grand Wizard of the Ku Klux Klan, who said at the white nationalist Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville, we all remember, of recent memory, on August 12, 2017, Duke said, we're going to fulfill the promises of Donald Trump. That's what we believed in. That's why we voted for Donald Trump, because he said he's going to take our country back, and that's what we've got to do. If we're beginning to grasp the depth and breadth and power of the myth of white supremacy in American life, and if we're willing to acknowledge the failures of the church in this regard, then we must now ask, in what ways has our theology failed us? What is it about the theology that many American Christians have embraced that has permitted, and even sanctioned, such complicity in the bigotry and racial oppression of America's popular culture? And the corollary question is this. How can Christian theology equip us to resist the myth of white supremacy in all of its forms? So, we're going to that question now. In his important book, The End of White Christian America, which if you haven't read, you should. It's a very important book. Robert Jones wrote, No segment of white Christian America has been more complicit in the nation's fraught racial history than white evangelical Protestants. Close quote. Two gross misreadings of Christian theology have allowed evangelicals, including members of Churches of Christ, to buy into the myth of white supremacy and to participate in the racist behavior that that myth inevitably spawns. The first misreading is this, that many American Christians have read and continue to read the biblical text through the lens of American popular culture while they should, we should, read the culture through the lens of the biblical text. And through that misreading, they allow the American nation, its values, its dominant culture, to take the place of the only reality to which, as Christians, we should be pledging our allegiance, the biblical vision of the kingdom of God. The statement by G.C. Brewer, cited earlier in this essay, typifies that reversal of priorities. Recalling how he and others routinely humiliated blacks when he was growing up in the early 20th century, Brewer continued, this was the condition that prevailed, and this we accepted as right and satisfactory. One finds in Brewer's statement no theological reflection whatsoever. The condition that prevailed apparently transformed the humiliation of blacks into right and satisfactory behavior, regardless of anything Jesus or any other writer of the biblical text might have said to the contrary. Christians like the young man Brewer, and there were many just like him, apparently found the condition that prevailed in the popular culture so overwhelming, so irresistible in the shaping of their hearts and minds that they could somehow view racist behavior as thoroughly compatible with the Christian faith. Or consider Landon Garland, the first chancellor of Vanderbilt University, an institution related at that time to the Methodist Episcopal Church South who expressed in 1869 his hope that this new Christian college would always exhibit, and I'm quoting now, a proper conformity to the conventionalities of society. The conventionalities of society in the American South at the time Garland wrote were clearly rooted in the principles of white supremacy. 
Or consider the Reverend Robert Jeffries, current pastor of the 10,000-member First Baptist Church in Dallas, who claimed that God had given President Donald Trump authority, and I'm quoting now, authority to take out Kim Jong-un, Supreme Leader of North Korea, ignoring Jesus' admonition to Christians to love your enemies. What are the factors that has allowed so many evangelical Christians to transform the Christian faith into a handmaiden of the popular culture was the conviction common among Christian people that the United States was a Christian nation. And if the nation was Christian, it would be difficult to admit to the racial oppression, even the racial crimes, which the majority of American citizens sanction. It's a Christian nation. What's the problem? How else can one explain the fact that professed Christians, thousands and thousands of them, took part in the lynching, the burning, the castration, the brutalizing of hundreds and thousands of black people throughout the United States between 1880 and 1940. How do we know that many of these people identify themselves as Christians? Because lynch mobs almost always drew from a cross-section of the community in which the lynching occurred, and because most lynchings occurred in America's Bible Belt. As Leon Litwick wrote, the bulk of the lynchers tended to be ordinary and respectable people, not so different from ourselves. Merchants, farmers, laborers, machine operators, teachers, lawyers, doctors, policemen, students. They were good family men and women, good, decent, church-going folk who came to believe that keeping black people in their place was nothing less than a form of pest control a way of combating an epidemic or a virus that if not checked would be detrimental to the health and security of the community. Indeed, he wrote, the moms who meted out summary justice were pronounced by one Georgian as, quote, composed of our very best citizens who are foremost in all works of public and private good. These racial zealots typically turned out of the thousands as if the lynching were some sort of spectator sport, and then gathered up souvenirs, fingers, toes, even genitals, to take back to their homes, reflecting on the fact that Christians participated in these atrocities. James Cone, in his powerful book, The Cross and the Lynching Tree, if you've not read it, you must read it, Cone leaves us to ponder this massive contradiction that Christians who believed in an innocent Jesus, lynched for their sins, lynched thousands of innocent blacks on a comparable tree, while never discerning the obvious similarity that connected both crimes or the obvious contradiction between their faith and their deeds. Says James Cole. Half a century later, their conviction that the United States was a Christian nation led many evangelicals, including many members of Churches of Christ, to regard the freedom movement, led by Martin Luther King Jr., as an unjustified complaint. How could this Christian nation have possibly denied equal rights and equal opportunity to any of its people? Martin Luther King and those for whom he spoke, these critics therefore claimed, were nothing more than agitators, inspired more by communism than anything resembling the Christian faith to which King swore an appeal. And by the way, one of my professors at Harlem College wrote a book, The Martin Luther King Story, and the thesis of the book was The Martin Luther King was a communist. One influential, a year after that book was published, Rule Lemons, 
editor of one of the two leading papers that served Churches of Christ, the Firm Foundation, penned a letter to Jennings Davis, at that time dean of students at Pepperdine in Los Angeles. Lemons wrote, a lot of people want to compare Martin Luther King to Jesus Christ. But in reality, Lemons wrote, King was a modernist and denied faith in Jesus Christ as taught in the Bible. If he was not an outright communist, he certainly advocated communist causes. His absolute disregard for law and order, except those laws and orders which he wanted to obey, leaves me cold. J. Edgar Hoover branded King a notorious liar, and Harry Truman said he was a troublemaker. This kind of man, black or white, I cannot conscientiously praise. So this is one of the leading editors of the Church of Christ Journal. Significantly, when Lemon sought to appraise King's character, the standard he erected was not one provided by Christian theology, but a standard provided by the director of the Federal Bureau of Investigation and a former president of the United States. Those Christians who took their cues from this Christian nation, whether those who hung blacks from the lynching tree or those who opposed the profoundly Christian work of the freedom movement, had substituted the nation for the only reality to which Christians are called to pledge our allegiance, the kingdom of God. A reality whose theological significance we'll explore shortly, but for now suffice it to say that the people who wage the struggle, struggle for equal rights, for equal housing, for equal access to food and education and clothing, were some of the people Jesus envisioned when he said, He has anointed me to bring good news to the poor and let the oppressed go free. But many evangelicals, including many in Churches of Christ, simply never made that connection. There's a second misreading of Christian theology that has allowed evangelicals to buy into the myth of white supremacy. For the past 125 years at least, evangelicals have more often than not envisioned the gospel as a strictly private affair involving just Jesus and me. And a religion that had little to do with the affairs of this world but everything to do with otherworldly visions of an afterlife to come. The theological problems with such a vision were immense. A privatized gospel completely severs the social or communal implications of the Christian message. And a gospel that is defined in purely otherworldly terms makes no room for social justice in the here and now. In cutting Christians off from the social implications of the gospel, these perspectives even though embraced by millions of American Christians, essentially reject the heart of Jesus' teachings. One brief story will illustrate this typically evangelical understanding of the Christian faith. The story that comes from an honors first-year seminar that my wife Jan and I came to for many years at Messiah College. One year, the college selected Tracy Kidder's Pulitzer Prize-winning book, Mountains Beyond Mountains, a book that chronicles Dr. Paul Farmer's long-standing commitment to combating HIV and tuberculosis among the desperately poor in Haiti is the common text that all students should read before arriving on campus that fall. On the very first day of class, we had barely introduced this book before one of the students registered her judgment that Mountains Beyond Mountains was an inappropriate text for Messiah College to have chosen. When we asked why she felt that way, she said with animated conviction, because it's obvious that Paul Farmer is not a Christian. Frankly, we were stunned. How could this woman possibly think that Paul Barber, a practicing Roman Catholic who for many years had given up a lucrative medical practice in the United States for the sake of Haiti's poor, 
How could she think he's not a Christian? So we asked our student to explain why she felt that way. She said she found in this book no evidence that Farmer, quote, had a personal relationship to Jesus. And she added that even though Farmer had healed the bodies of thousands upon thousands of Haitians over many years, he apparently had never preached the gospel to these Haitians or attempted to save their souls for the world to come. How then could we possibly consider him a Christian? If one imagines that the Christian life is nothing more than a private daily walk with Jesus, there can be no theological motive for judging white supremacy and racist behavior to be fundamentally at odds with the core principles of the Christian faith. And if the goal of the Christian life is nothing more than securing an abode in the world to come and avoiding the fires of hell, then the Christian faith provides no compelling reason to come to terms with the pervasive power of white supremacy or to work to undermine racism in the larger society. Now, quickly, I'm going to turn to Churches of Christ. While Churches of Christ, like the larger evangelical world, have often read the biblical text through the lens of American popular culture, have often worshipped the pride of Jesus, have often defined the Christian faith chiefly as a journey to, to an otherworldly abode, there were other additional factors that blinded them to the realities of white supremacy. It was surely not the case that Church of Christ people were unfamiliar with the Bible, or the Bible has been the singular focus of Churches of Christ from the time of our inception in the early 19th century. But it is the case that Churches of Christ forced questions and concerns onto the biblical text that at best were marginal to the biblical witness. And it is also the case that Churches of Christ read the Bible in ways that simply obscured the central message. Alexander Campbell set the agenda for Churches of Christ when he vigorously promoted the restoration of primitive Christianity. The problem was not the idea of restoration, in my judgment, in its own right, since the notion of restoration, I think, is an inherently useful vision. The problem lay in the fact that Campbell, indebted as he was to the principles of the Age of Reason, defined restoration in strictly rational terms. And the rational quality of Campbell's thought led him to view the New Testament not as a theological and ethical treatise that offers a vision of the Kingdom of God, Instead, Campbell viewed the New Testament as a scientific manual upon which rational and unbiased people might reconstruct in scientifically precise and accurate ways the forms and structures of the primitive church. The notion of forms and structures is crucial to this conversation, for Campbell seldom asked what the Bible said about the poor. Instead, he asked about the biblical pattern for worship. He seldom asked what the Bible said about marginalized people. Instead, he asked about a rationally constructed plan of salvation. He seldom asked what the Bible said about people oppressed by imperial powers. Instead, he asked about the biblical model for the proper organization of the local church. In all these ways, Campbell diverted the eyes of churches of Christ from the driving themes of the Christian doctrine. But there's more, for in a zeal to restore the forms and structures of the primitive church, Campbell argued that the Christian age began not with the birth of Jesus, but with the birth of the church, recorded in Acts chapter 2. Everything prior to Acts 2, he argued, rightly belonged to what he called the Mosaic Dispensation, which had no relevance for the, for the grand task of restoring the primitive church. So in effect, Campbell minimized the importance not only of the Hebrew Bible, but also of the Gospels. Over time, that action would essentially sever churches of Christ from the prophetic vision one, one finds especially in Jesus and the Hebrew prophets. But there's still more. For even in the lifetime of Campbell, 
Simon Churches of Christ transformed Campbell's goal of restoring the primitive church into a fixed and settled conviction that they had, in fact, restored the one true church and that outside of that church there could be no salvation. By the 1950s and 1960s, the notion that one's salvation depended on one's belonging to the one true church had become, for many members and congregants in this tradition, the most important consideration of all. Having obscured the central themes of the biblical message, the white churches of Christ at the time of the freedom movement were wholly unprepared to embrace their brothers and sisters of color who asked for nothing more than to be treated with respect as human beings. Indeed, we were wholly unprepared to discern in the freedom movement the faces of the kingdom of God. Now, quickly, some theological resources. I know of no way to resist the shaping and defining power of the dominant culture unless we possess two assets. First, we must occupy a vantage point that allows us to look into the culture, as it were, from outside the culture. And second, that vantage point must provide us with a set of values that are foreign to the culture, that stand in judgment on the culture, and that challenge the culture and the culture's values in radical ways. And the fact is, every Christian has access to precisely that sort of vantage point. The New Testament describes that vantage point with a single word, gospel, good news. The good news that God loves us infinitely more than we can fathom, has accepted us, has said yes to us in spite of our inevitable failures, our brokenness and our sins. That is the gospel message, the heart of biblical faith. But there's a corollary to this message, a corollary to which the New Testament writers return time and again. No one put it better than John in his first epistle. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. How does God's love abide in anyone who has this world's goods and sees a brother or a sister in need and yet refuses help? Little children, let us love, not in word or speech, but in truth and action. So the gospel message then has two components. First, God extends His radical, self-giving love and grace to us, has accepted us, has said yes to us in spite of our inevitable failures, our brokenness and our sins. And second, God's love requires that we extend that same love and grace to others and say yes to them in spite of their inevitable failures, their brokenness, their sin. The first component, God's own love and grace, is the driving, enabling power behind the second component, the grace we must extend to our neighbors. But what happens when a Christian tradition seldom preaches the gospel of God's free and unmerited grace? What happens when a Christian tradition identifies God's grace with God's commands? What happens when a Christian tradition defines the plan of salvation not in terms of what God has done for us, but rather in terms of the human response to divine commands? What happens is this, that the, that the Christian tradition that fails to proclaim God's unmerited grace has severed the driving force behind the love and grace that, according to the Gospel message, we must extend to others. And that is precisely what happened in the Church of the Christ for a period of 150 years. From the 1820s, when we first began to identify God's grace with God's commands, to the 1870s, when Church of Christ, to the 1970s, when we finally discovered and began to preach widely the gospel of unmerited grace. A single story illustrates the point.
By the 1930s, most in churches of Christ believed that they were saved by works. Few preachers in this tradition proclaim the message of unmerited grace. I say few, maybe none. <laughs> One of those was K.C. Mosier, a native Texan and a preacher in Oklahoma and Texas from the 1920s through the 1970s. The careful reading of his Bible convinced Mosier that God's grace was to be found not in his commands, but in the cross of Christ. He published his views in 1932 in a little book he called The Way of Salvation. But it was not until 1934 when he published an article in the Texas Faith Firm Foundation that churches of Christ began to pay any serious regard to his perspective. And the response when he came was almost entirely negative. Quite simply, Mosier argued that while baptism and good works were important, the gospel was a message of unmerited grace, and the proper response to that grace was to trust in Christ who had been crucified, buried, and raised for our justification. The editor of the Firm Foundation, one of the two leading papers in the Church of Christ at that time, G.H.P. Showalter, rejected Mosier's claim out of hand and pressed him to, quote, speedily abandon such fantastic speculation. The storm of controversy quickly erupted over Mosier's emphasis on unmerited grace, and Mosier became persona non grata in many corners of the churches of Christ for the next 40 years. He was not even welcomed onto the campuses of Church of Christ and colleges. He was such a heretic. When the freedom movement emerged in the mid-1950s, Churches of Christ, we, almost entirely lacked the vantage point that might have allowed us to bring to that moment the insights of John. How does God's love abide in anyone who has this world's good since he's a brother or sister in need and yet refuses help? Indeed, we almost entirely lacked the vantage point that might have prompted us to extend unmerited grace to their neighbors just as God has extended His unmerited grace to them. You sure you want me to finish this? Keep reading? All right. This is what I told you. It's hot. Yeah, okay. Crack a window? Yeah. Okay. We don't have very far to go in this. So, In addition to the gospel of grace, the New Testament offers Christians one other vantage point from which we can resist the sirens of the dominant culture. Matthew describes that vantage point as the gospel of the kingdom. The gospel of the kingdom. Here are Matthew's words in chapter 4. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the good news, the gospel of the kingdom, and curing every disease and every sickness among the people. Matthew's phrase, the gospel of the kingdom, offers an early introduction to a theme that resonates throughout the Gospels, namely the phrase, the Kingdom of God. And if we inquire in the meaning of the Kingdom of God, the answer seems not all that hard to find. In virtually every instance, not every instance, but in virtually every instance, where the phrase Kingdom of God appears in the New Testament, it seems closely linked to concern for the poor, the dispossessed, those in prison, the maimed, the lame, the blind, and all those who suffer at the hands of the world's elites. In other words, the kingdom of God is where the powerless are empowered, where the hungry are fed, where the sick are healed, where the poor are sustained, 
where those who find them marginalized by the rulers of this world are finally often equality and justice. Put another way, the gospel of the kingdom of God is the corollary of the gospel of grace. It tells us that just as God has said yes to us in spite of our failures, so we must say yes to others in spite of all of our failures. Or in the words of John, we know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for one another. In this limited space, we cannot explore the biblical vision of the kingdom of God in great detail, but just a handful of passages will help us get the point. In the second chapter of Luke, an angel appears to the shepherds in the field by night and proclaims good news of great joy for all the people, for to you is born this day in the city of David the Savior, who is the Messiah, the Lord. In the context of imperial Rome, that angel's proclamation was both revolutionary and seditious. For its two key words, Savior and Lord, were titles routinely applied to the emperor, Caesar Augustus. Indeed, Caesar's titles included Divine, Son of God, God, God from God, Redeemer, Liberator, Lord, and Savior of the world. Early Christians must have understood, wrote John Dominic Crossing, that to proclaim Jesus as the Son of God was deliberately denying Caesar his highest title, and that to announce Jesus as Lord and Savior was calculated treason. So when that angel proclaimed to the shepherds the birth of the one who is Savior and Lord, the angel offered the shepherds a vantage point that allowed them to look into the cultures that were from outside the culture itself, and a vantage point that offered the shepherds a set of values that challenged their culture in radical ways. It's one thing to proclaim that Jesus is Savior and Lord, but it's something else to ask what that Savior and Lord requires. And that is the question Luke answers with incredible clarity in Luke chapter 3, a passage that contrasts the humble kingdom of God with the all-pervasive power and splendor of the Roman Empire. Luke sets up the contrast beautifully, referring first to the ruling elites of his day. You know, in some ways you read through this material and you kind of go, ho-hum, you know, this, this litany of names, but you then begin to think, oh, is that what he's after? Wow. In the 15th year of the Emperor Tiberius, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, and Herod was ruler of Galilee, and his brother Philip was ruler of the region of Hetaria and Trachonitis, and Lysanias was the ruler of Abilene during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came. In those years, the word of God came. came to who? It came, Luke tells us, to John, the son of Zechariah. Where? In the wilderness. Here Luke subtly contrasts the wilderness where John resided with the imperial courts of Tiberius, Caesar, Herod, Philip, Lysanias. And later in the Gospel, Luke is not so subtle since he reports that Jesus himself contrasted John's poverty with the luxury of imperial power. What then did you go out to see? Jesus asked the people. Someone dressed in soft robes? Look, those who put on fine clothing and live in luxury or in royal palaces. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I, and I tell you more than a prophet. Tellingly, Matthew draws a very similar contrast. After reporting that the imperial powers, notably Herod and Archelaus, sought to murder the child who is Savior and Lord, Matthew offers this simple but stunning sentence. In those days, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness of Judea. And the point Matthew clearly makes is that unlike Herod and Archelaus, 
John was not a product of royal palaces, but of the wilderness, where in fact he wore clothing of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. The contrast Matthew draws between John on the one hand and the imperial powers on the other could not have been greater. And finally, what message did John proclaim? Did he preach the American gospel that God helps those who help themselves? Hardly. According to Luke, John preached a message of radical compassion for those in need. So when the crowds asked him, what then should we do? John replied, whoever has two coats must share with anyone who has none. And whoever has food must do likewise. The point is this, that John the Baptist both through the life he lived and the message he preached, offered those around him a vantage point that allowed them to look into their culture, as it were, from outside the culture, and to claim a set of values that would challenge the culture in a radical way. Jesus does the same thing when he comes to Nazareth. And there in the synagogue announces his mission. According to Luke, when he came to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up, he went to the synagogue from the Sabbath, this was his custom, he stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to captives, and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and he sat down, and began to say to them, Today, the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. The Gospels record only one other instance when Jesus defined the concerns that would characterize his mission and vocation. Matthew records that John the Baptist, languishing in prison, heard of the work Jesus was doing and sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we wait for another? And Jesus replied, Go and tell John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have good news brought to them. By framing his mission of vocation in these terms, Jesus lined out the contours of what he often called the kingdom of God. And that kingdom provided then and still provides a transcendent point of reference that allows Jesus' followers in every time and place to look into the culture, as it were, from outside and to claim a transcendent set of values they can challenge the culture in radical ways. And even though I'm not finished, I'm finished. I think that catches the gist of what we want to say. Thank you. Okay? Well, I'd like to thank uh, Richard and Paul for asking me to respond to this uh, important paper. I'm relatively new to the literature of race and religion in America, but I've been immersed in the literature for the last couple of years for research, so I consider it a real treat uh, and an honor to offer a few thoughts. So I'm convinced that the practice of... I'm a historian, by the way, so maybe that's a good preface for this next comment. I'm convinced that the practice of historical inquiry has a transformational potential. The repeated act of listening to others whose voices are recorded in the past fosters the act of listening. And as we master the art of listening to others, especially others who are different from the listener, listening becomes a habit. 
And when we listen habitually, we practice a crucial aspect of dialogue. And it is precisely in, and I quote from a former book from Richard here, it is precisely an authentic dialogue with a diversity of perspectives and worldviews that are different from our own that we experience educational and spiritual formation. Practicing authentic dialogue has the potential to spiritually transform us. That's what I'm saying. So since historical inquiry requires careful listening to the other, the historian's process and historical discourse, like we heard today, abound with transformational potential. One must learn to listen well to be a historian, but as Hughes argues today at the beginning of his paper, the act of listening to the disenfranchised and the oppressed is also a first step of discipleship. Surely, cultivating the art of dialogue, which entails careful listening to the other, is an essential part, not only of discipleship, but of expanding the awareness of the ubiquity of white supremacy. Listen. We must listen. So fittingly, Hughes helps us do just that in the first section of his paper. We listen. For the most part, Hughes bends our ears to the voices of, of black individuals. He does this to help us understand the nature of the racist culture that we have inherited. He rightly notes that American white supremacy is not simply a story about the KKK or other radical white nationalist groups. Rather, it's an ideology so deeply embedded in our common culture that we can escape the power it wields over our minds and emotions with great difficulty, if at all. Quote from his paper. It is like the air that we breathe. The most moving anecdotes that use offered to illuminate the effects of white supremacy in American culture, at least to me, are the women. Richard's former student and Picola from Toni Morrison's novel The Bluest Eye. Perhaps it's because I read Morrison's novel for the first time last fall and this very revelation of Picola, about Picola moved me to tears more than one time, more than once as I listened to the audiobook that Morrison herself reads. In both of these instances, for Piccola and for Richard's former student, the girls had subconsciously associated beauty and success with whiteness. Who told, I want to know, right? Who told Piccola that white was pretty and black was ugly? How did that warped idea get into her mind? And is it in our heads? This is where Richard's metaphor seems correct. White supremacy was, is, the air breathed, not only by white people, but by Piccola and by Richard's former student as well. This might be a good point to note where Hughes' emphasis on the myth of white supremacy came from. Again, listening to black voices, I think, right? Um, Two years ago, Hughes wrote a piece in Yale's magazine, Reflections, in which he describes the event that got him thinking about white supremacy as the myth that undergirds all the the five other myths that Americans live by. That is, Hughes identifies those five other myths in a book, so you might be familiar with, Myths Americans Live By, published in 2003. And as Hughes sat down after giving a review of James Cone's The Cross and the Lynching Tree, which he spoke about today, at an American Academy of Religion uh, 
conference in, in 2012, a black professor by the name of James Knoll leaned to Richard and said, Professor, you left out the most important of all the American myths, the myth of white supremacy. And after listening carefully to this particular black voice and giving it much thought, Hughes now argues that the myth of white supremacy indeed undergirds the other five myths he has outlined. Hughes further explores those in the forthcoming second, a plug, right, of the second coming, the, the forthcoming second edition of Myth and Myths Americans Live By, which is slated to come out this year, right? September 1st. September 1st, 2018. Some of which he draws on, you don't know because you don't have the footnotes, in today's paper. The second major part of Hughes' paper explores the kind of theology that allowed for the rise of and even the support of white supremacy. When Christians read scripture through the lens of culture instead of reading culture through the lens of scripture, the church comes to look like culture rather than the culture being shaped and pushed and prodded by kingdom witnesses. Hughes' quote from G.C. Brewer was powerful to me and I think encapsulates this idea. Brewer said that segregation and the humiliation of blacks was, quote, the condition that prevailed and we accepted it as right and satisfactory. When one adds to this the myth that America is a Christian nation, it not only becomes more difficult to oppose wickedness in American culture, but it becomes easier to support American wickedness in the name of Christianity. Beyond reading Scripture through cultural lenses, so moving on to these other things that Richard unpacked, the privatization of the gospel also fostered conservative Christian accommodation of white supremacy. This might be, I think, maybe the most important point, historically. As conservative Christians made the gospel a private affair between the individual and Jesus, especially in sharp reaction to the social gospel in the late 19th and early 20th century, the gospel was separated from social justice. Anybody that grew up in here from the 70s after evangelical churches, you're not as familiar with that, right? I grew up like, oh, social justice is a thing. But before the civil rights movement, evangelicals were fiercely anti-social justice. I find this point really, really ironic and certainly tragic. That same earlier version of of conservative Christianity helped produce reform movements in the early 19th century that worked to end slavery. What happened between 1830 and... Well, we know as point, right? So Hughes adds that the churches of Christ were blinded to white supremacy for additional reasons. Reasons rooted in their view of the nature of the New Testament and the application of its teachings. This is where I have the most questions. Um, Alexander Campbell's patternism and dispensationalism fostered a sectarian view of the church, which led many to reject the work of Martin Luther King Jr. and the freedom movement as Christian. It's not Christian. Right, based on this kind of based on this view of the nature of scripture, despite the obvious correlation of King's mission with the kingdom of God. This is a crucial point because to me it reveals a major deficiency in traditional hermeneutics of the churches of Christ. When the Christian age begins at Acts two and Jesus and thus Jesus' central teaching of the kingdom of God and the Old Testament prophets are relegated to the past that is not relevant for restoring the New Testament churches beliefs and practices right now one loses the entire heart of the prophetic biblical witness and the teaching and the ethical teachings of God incarnate. That is surely a problem. I'm wondering here, though, also, if the proposals, thinking especially about the nature of Scripture here and hermeneutics as cause, 
I'm wondering if the proposals that Hughes makes in the last section of the paper, the gospel of grace and the kingdom of God, are even possible to utilize while still holding Campbell's view of the nature of Scripture. That is, if one buys into the patternist idea that Scripture is a manual for the forms and structures of New Testament church, which probably not very many people in here do, but plenty of people in our pews every week do, is it possible not to be, not to be captive to one's culture? Must one instead view Scripture, as you've said, a theological and ethical treatise that offers a vision of the kingdom of God? Your paper, uh, Richard, it might be open to that interpretation. And this interpretation, in fact, might be true. I'm not sure. But a question does for thinking, uh, a question arises to me, and that's, this, this is the question. What about the African-American churches of Christ? So many in the African-American churches of Christ continue to hold patternist, the patternist hermeneutic, yet one assumes they haven't bought into the idea of white supremacy, or at least not the same degree that white churches of Christ has. Therefore, I'm wondering how much of white churches of Christ's captivity has been the result of bad hermeneutics, and some of it certainly has, and how much the result of other causes. For example, I don't know, having power and influence in culture. Is it enough to change one's hermeneutic? And if one embraces different, say, healthier, a healthier hermeneutic, surely that does not guarantee a countercultural approach, and I, you're not saying that. I think Hughes is correct in his assertion that the Church of Christ hermeneutic fostered accommodation of white supremacy. But I'm left wondering how much other factors, especially cultural power and influence, led and continue to lead different communities to respond to culture in different ways, even when they share the same hermeneutic. So it also seems that Hughes' resourcing Church of Christ theology, so let me nerd out for just a minute, um, seems that you're resourcing Church of Christ theology also to critique Church of Christ theology to critique white supremacy and offer, and, and you're resourcing Church of Christ theology to propose things to combat it. But you only mention Casey Moser. So again, perhaps this is an esoteric question and a conversation for me and Richard over coffee, but I would certainly enjoy knowing who in the Church of Christ heritage is most influential in helping Richard thinking Richard's thinking along these lines. As a historian of the Stone Campbell movement and a fan of Richard's reviving the ancient faith, it's hard for me not to see the apocalyptic theological vision of Barton Stone and David Lipscomb in aspects of the proposed remedy today, though no doubt parts of it are the problem. So for those of you who don't know, the apocalyptic theological vision of Barton Stone is this idea that, that Richard helped us really understand in, in an article in his book in the 90s that um, Barton Stone, especially toward the end of his life, sort of re- had this radical view of the separation from the world, living like in, a, in allegiance to the kingdom of God alone, in separation from the kingdoms of the world, and oftentimes in sharp uh, combat with the kingdoms of the world. That is, don't vote, don't participate in politics, do not fight, do not kill, only a very, a very Anabaptist-sounding kind of a vision, a separationist theology, which David Lipscomb gave or which Barton Stone gave to David Lipscomb and others, which undergirded what today we talk, typically call the Tennessee tradition in the Church of Christ. So I'm just wondering, how much would you say, oh, they have actually led me into this thinking, or how much of it, of it are other uh, theological resources? So I applaud what Hughes has done here, his proposal for building a theology 
that can empower Christians of every stripe to resist racial racist seductions of our culture and to pursue justice and equality for the oppressed is sound. The gospel of grace that you outline contributes to the idea that God loved us despite our failures and the only response is for us to therefore love God and others just as God has loved us. And the gospel of the kingdom of God is good news for the marginalized and the oppressed throughout the New Testament. Focusing on the kingdom of God provides a vantage point for Christians that is radically for the poor, for the marginalized, for the oppressed, for the hungry. And just one, one last thought here. And I'm especially thinking about here, okay, we've talked a lot about ideas. You know what I mean? I'm very interested in thinking through the consequent actions of the church. And I'm wondering even if actions must come first and these actions then lead us to a healthier theology. So some of you are already thinking probably what I'm thinking about James K. Smith's recent work. Not all of it, but the particular part where Smith talks about what we do. Smith argues what we do, what we do day in and day out, what Smith calls liturgies, are far more important in shaping who we are and what we love and what we think than our attempts to just simply change our minds. Or in other words, the the things we do day in, day out are what actually change our minds, but most of that changing of the mind is done on a subconscious level. Just as we, just as we as a culture have breathed the air of white supremacy by subconsciously performing cultural liturgies day in and day out, we must uproot white supremacy by participating in cultural and religious liturgies that form us and shape us into people who despise racism and who love justice. No doubt, as we attempt to define what those liturgies are, what we as Christians should be doing in our worship services, what we should be saying in our prayers, what we should be singing in our hymns, etc., etc., those things must be rooted in the kingdom of God and built on God's grace. And no doubt, as we try to form our culture into one that despises racism and loves justice, we must work to install cultural liturgies that form us and shape us into people who love and respect others, who love and respect diversity, who value the transformational potential of dialogue. Dialogue with people who greatly differ from us. Because right now we are entrenched in cultural liturgies that are forming us and shaping us to do the opposite. So my question then is like, yes, but what can we do? What sort of practices in the church, in our culture, can we instill that will subconsciously form us into good human beings instead of the bad ones that we're seeing so often emerge in our culture? So perhaps when we consider changing our minds, our theology, and our hermeneutics, we must simultaneously put in place practices that will form us into kingdom people. So what are those liturgies? Is my end question. Like, what are those liturgies? What can we do? What are those daily actions and habits we can put into place as Christian communities to become kingdom-minded people and kingdom-acting people? Surely at the top of that list is listening. Surely. And so thanks to Richard today for helping us listen. I'm going to leave time for questions, uh, but uh, let me make a few comments. Uh, uh, I I spent a first part of this response just saying what Richard said. What he's giving us is, uh, and, and James has brought this out well, is that we need a theological transformation 
that ties practice together with salvation with the church. I think uh, uh, the key to everything is his opening statement of the paper uh, in which he frames everything else that he says. He says, In the heart of Jesus' preaching was his concern and compassion for disenfranchised, oppressed people. Then the first step toward becoming his disciple is to listen carefully and attentively to those people who wish to tell us the contours of their lives. If we, you know, this is the picture in James that if we do not have ears to hear, God hears the oppressed, but the evil, the wicked, and the rich are incapacitated in their ability to hear. A religion that does not provide for widows, orphans, the poor, James says, is not true religion. A religion which, and this is Alexander Campbell, which creates widows and orphans and which impoverishes, kills, excludes. If you haven't caught it by now, what Richard is appealing to is a nonviolent tradition that is very rich in the Christian church, the Restoration Movement, that is almost entirely lost. And so I think the voice that, that he's providing for us is, is an appeal out of that tradition. Uh, one who denigrates the impoverished, this is James, and joins the oppressor, he says, is not a follower of Jesus. The Christian loves his neighbor, and James will equate the neighbor, as Jesus does, as one of the poor, one of the oppressed. Uh, this is in James chapter 2. And so in his various tests of true religion, and I'm building to a point that I, I, I think Richard may be too much of a gentleman to make, but I'm going to make the point. Uh, actually, he made the point today to me in private. Um, and that is that we are dealing with a claim for Christianity that does not deserve the name even by the definition given to us in the New Testament. And that is that a singular definitive marker for distinguishing Christianity from pure evil is this capacity to hear the oppressed. When you turn deaf, you're no longer Christian by James' picture. You're not with God, you're against God. Um... That's, that, so I thought that was the key point. Is the problem, I have a question for Richard, and actually my question, uh, there's a bit of a, a misnomer. I've misunderstood him, but I thought my misunderstanding may be a helpful misunderstanding. He's already corrected me here. So I'm going to go ahead and say this. Uh, that he depicts the complicity of the Church of Christ in white supremacy because of its focus on works as opposed to grace. And I wonder if he agrees with his own earlier description of the problem when he quotes Campbell. It is precisely the ethics of Christ and the embodied ethics of Israel, that is, the, the, the works or doing things, is very much a part of the religion of Jesus. And the, the discussion about works of the law is a, peculiar, a peculiarity that we get in a Lutheran understanding. You know, the idea, and so we're going to get a problem here, and when he begins to talk about grace, we may be all thinking of Lutheran or Calvinistic or Christian church notions of grace that are almost empty of content. Um, so, you know, when, when Paul is talking about the, the works of the law, he's 
talking about ethnic markers, the food laws, circumcision, uh, the the seventh day, you know, Sabbath keeping. And this, in other words, the, the danger is that if we go this route, even if we focus on grace, we still are, are dealing with a disembodied or a supersessionist theology. And I know Richard is not doing that. That is that we would say, oh, there's Old Testament, New Testament, there's law over and against grace, there's you know works over and against grace. So Richard wants to locate the problem and a focus on God's commands as opposed to focus on God's grace. And this way of construing the problem seems to presume there is such a thing in the Bible as commands or law as over and against grace. And I think people have presumed that. I'm not saying that Richard may be presuming that. And so the error of the Lutheran reading of Paul imagines Paul pits law against grace. And so Lutheran, you know, this is the, the problem with evangelicalism that Richard is equating the rise, or not equating, but connecting the rise of white supremacy in the Christian churches also with an absorption of evangelicalism. And in an evangelical picture, salvation is apart from works. And, and there's the confusion. They confuse the works of the law and the works of the Catholic Church, you know, in Luther's estimate, or the work of salvation, which the church brings about. And so as a result, evangelicalism has disassociated salvation from the church or the kingdom. Um, Let me suggest that the church of Christ is not wrong in imagining it is saved by being part of the true church. No problem. It is wrong in equating that the true church is itself or simply Orthodox, you know, and we all presume that our faith is the Orthodox faith. Going back to James, he says, "Well, the demons in hell believe that God is one." Uh, you know, that Orthodoxy is not a good guarantee of being on the side of God. So maybe Richard's main point here is a corrective. And that is that Christian complicity in systemic evil, such as slavery, you know, we could go on, national socialism, white supremacy, bigotry, oppression of women and minorities, or simply the abuse due to misshapen theology of women, of people of color. You know, James identifies the worker who's denied his wages. That all of this is a clear sign of a deaf religion, a religion that no longer hears. And the reason they no longer hear is that in some way the religion has become justified for their justification for their deafness. And that's where I'm leading with this, that what Richard has described to us is not simply a faith that is complicit, but a faith that in fact justifies white supremacy, a faith that is used as justification for doing evil in the name of an orthodox Christianity. So, you know, is and, and we can talk about that. The other thing, and, and I asked Richard about this, and I, again, I think it's a, a question that might be raised. Is it adequate to focus on unmerited grace, which is a continuation, apart from understanding the channel of the grace? 
So Richard imagines that just unmerited grace is a theological step in the right direction. But what I'm saying, and I think he would agree, and that it seems necessary to connect this unmerited grace. We have to put flesh on this grace. We have to go back and say, well, this grace is channeled through the promises of Abraham. It's channeled through the people of Israel. And the church then receives this grace as it is on a continuum with Israel. It is the fulfillment of Israel. And so it accomplishes the salvation promised to Israel. This is an important point because the church then is a socio-political cultural entity through which salvation is channeled. There is no salvation apart from this socio-cultural entity. And the only way you get that is, you know, or a supersessionist theology, supersessionism, leaving out Israel, is not going to get you get you there. And this is what James is describing. Uh, but also, James McClendon does the, a similar thing. That what we need then is a salvation that is tied to the practices of the church. That salvation is a set of practices. Um, And so the question is, what, at what point is the church no longer the church? At what point are Christians no longer Christians? Frederick Douglass raises this. James Cone raises this. Uh, that what is being described as Christianity, uh, uh, that it is in fact an abomination. James Cone says, this is not the teaching of Christ. This is the teaching of the Antichrist. That... Uh, if salvation is primarily concerned with souls going to heaven, it may be impossible to say, which is, you know, to say, to, to make this point may be a useless point. But I think if we say that Christianity evinces a particular understanding that sal- what salvation is, is very, it's a real world deliverance from evil, and where Christianity is involved in that real world deliverance, well, then we understand that this is an authentic faith and where that real-world deliverance has been abandoned, we're no longer dealing with Christians or Christianity. So that was the quote that uh, uh, Richard began with from Fred Frederick Douglass, that the religion, there was such a wide difference between the Christianity of Christ and the Christianity of this land that to receive the one as pure, good, and holy is of necessity to reject the other as bad, corrupt, and wicked. To be the friend of the one is of necessity to be the enemy of the other. And he goes on to say, I can see no reason, this is, this is Douglas, not me, I can see no reason but the most deceitful one for calling the religion of this land Christianity. Uh, Frederick Douglass, James Cohen hit a very simple, similar note in the cross and the lynching tree. Uh, the, you know, the, uh, his black li- in, uh, his uh, liberation theology. Uh, Cohen says, either God is identified with the oppressed to the point that their experience becomes God's experience, or God is a God of racism. And so we must accept, according to Cohen that God is known where human beings experience humiliation and suffering and that he identifies with the oppressed and suffering. The very essence of divine activity as revealed in the cross enables us to align 
and this is Cohn's main point, it enables us to see the lynching tree in the cross and the cross in the lynching tree. Christians could no longer understand that they were doing to black people the same thing that Jesus' contemporaries were doing to him. Why? Because of bad theology, in part. Uh, so Christ was himself hung from, his tree, from a tree and his followers identify not with those who put him there, but with the one. In other words, if, if our, our Christianity can be one in which we say, I believe that Christ died so that we do not have to, that's one form of Christianity, or I believe that we must take up our cross and follow Jesus. That's the religion of James Cone, of Frederick Douglass, of Richard Hughes. And I think that is the, those are two very different things. I think the one deserves the name Christian, the other does not deserve that name. Uh, and I'll stop there. Uh, oh, let me make one last point. This and this is your. I thought this was your key point, and that is he draws salvation. He says in a, is an active living out of grace. Richard draws together, this is James' point also, that he draws together ecclesiology and soteriology. That is, the way in which you are saved is in and through the church. The way in which you are saved, am I overstating it? The way in which you are saved is through the kingdom of God. And the church is a very obvious socio-political cultural entity that you take up the practices of Jesus, you practice the ethics of Jesus, so that salvation is a lived ethic. It's a lived reality. And so what is being pictured is uh, that there is no salvation in the epistles apart from the ethics in the Gospels. Salva- uh, you know, the picture of theology as we have it, presently have it, separates out Jesus' ethics from the, the ethics of the kingdom. Those were a few random comments, but Richard, you, if you would want well, to. Well, let me just, res- just respond really quickly. And maybe we can take some comments and questions for the floor. You know, as I've listened to uh, Paul and Jamie, and, and both of you have once again brought up Frederick Douglass, uh, You know, to be Christian really does mean to follow Jesus Christ. Uh, it doesn't. It's not a hollow. Uh, it doesn't mean anything we want it to mean. It, it really has a very definite meaning. And we're very reluctant, I think, because in our age of tolerance. And I and I want to be reluctant. I mean, you, you want to be open and tolerant. That's a virtue. So we're very reluctant, though, to do what Frederick Douglass did. Now, Frederick Douglass simply said, what we see around us is not Christianity. What I read in the scripture is this is Jesus, this is Christianity. What we see here is not. It's something else. And I was thinking, you know, there's can think of another person in the history of the Church of Christ who made that very same point. And his name was R.N. Hogan. We all know R.N. Hogan? Orrin Hogan, uh, there were two great black 
preachers in the history of churches of Christ. One, one would conform in many ways to the, to the model of, uh, of, of Booker T. Washington, and the other would conform to the model of uh, Du Bois, W. E. Du Bois. One was, you know, one was an accommodationist, and one was, you know, so. And the early black preacher who was refused to accommodate, he would not play the game, was George Philip Bowser. And Bowser was the one who launched the black gospel paper that most white people in the Church of Christ had never even heard of. Still published, it was begun in 1902, uh, still published called The Christian Echo. And Bowser took into his home a young man who, uh, uh, I think his friends his mother, passed away, was, I don't remember all the details, but he was maybe semi-orbit. At any rate, Bowser took the gentleman to his home. The man's name was R.N. Hogan. And in time, Hogan became the editor of the Christian Echo. So when the Supreme Court ruled, Brown versus Board of Education, that, that schools should, should integrate, as the court said, with all deliberate speed. And of course, it wasn't all deliberate speed. You know, and church schools especially drug their feet run your feet. One of the interesting things to me about living in Nashville now, usually you drive around Nashville and you can see these Christian academies, and they'll often say such a Christian academy founded in 1962. And you know you know the story. I mean, you know exactly what's going on. Uh, that you know the history. Well, so the Church of Christ related colleges run their feet and run their feet and refuse to integrate and so on. And Aaron Hogan just flat out said, he said, you know, these folks aren't Christian. There's nothing Christian about them. They claim to be Christian. They claim to be Christian churches. They're not. They claim to be Christian colleges. They're not. There's something else. Hogan said this. And then, and then, and then we, what was really interesting, you know the story of the National Christian Institute? Let me just really quickly tell this. If you don't, it's a wonderful, it's a terribly sad story. But the, the story is that in 1941, the black members of the Church of Christ in the city of Nashville pooled their resources and built a school for their children. It was called the National Christian Institute. In time, they, and early on, the board of the NCI was all black. And in time, they made a great mistake. They began to invite white folks onto the board. And some of them were chairman uh, of the board of Lipscomb, David Lipscomb College, uh, president of David Lipscomb College. In time, the white folks came to dominate the board. And then it was maybe 1966 or 67 when the board now controlled by whites, voted to close NCI against the will of the black Christians in Nashville, sell it, and appropriate the funds to David Lipscomb College. It's a true story. On the grounds that they would now give uh, scholarships to black youth, never mind the fact they never had a single black youth. But they were in the beginning of, they thought we're going to open the doors to black youth. Well, the black Church of Christ folks in Nashville were just Apoplectic. They were absolutely furious. And so they hired Fred Gray. Do you all know the name Fred Gray? You know, Fred Gray. Most people in America don't know the name Fred Gray, but he was fully essential to the civil rights movement as Martin Luther King Jr. He was key. He was the lawyer for the movement. He was the attorney. He was King's lawyer, Rosa Parks' lawyer, Hosea Williams' lawyer. He was lawyer for the marches. I mean, he was the man in the law. He filed suits before the Supreme Court, and he, he is the key guy. Church of Christ preacher went to school at NCI. So the black Christians 
in Nashville, they hired Fred Gray to sue David Lipscomb College. And, and, and Hogan commented on that lawsuit in the, in the uh, Christian Echo. And Hogan said, I understand that the Bible says we should not sue our brothers. We should not sue Christians. But the fact of the matter is we're not dealing with Christians. We're not dealing with something else. These folks aren't Christians. We can take, we'll take them to court. Well, you know, I mean, he kind of had a point. And, and, and uh, you know, and the, the, the fact of the matter is that, uh, that Fred Gray and, and the blacks lost the case. Wes Crawford, in his wonderful book, Shattering the Illusion, it's the history of the black and white churches of Christ and the, the relationship that finally became no relationship at all with the, the black churches separated out. Um, Wes tells this story. But Wes also, t- I was rereading it just this morning, so it's very fresh in my mind, but Wes also tells that the judge in the case was a very close friend of the president of, of, of Athens Clay Pullings. And when Fred Gray would stand up and make his you make his speeches in the court. The judge turned his back. Turned his back on Fred Gray. So it was I mean, it was pretty clear who should have won that case, but who didn't. Uh, Randy Lowry now has come to Lipscomb as the, as the president, came in, what, 2005, and, and Randy is nothing if not a bridge builder. So Randy has just really been working to build bridges with Fred Gray, and it's, it's a great story what's happened since then. But I think this business, this business of, of you know, when I was a kid growing up, we'd say, well, the Baptists aren't Christians, you know, the Presbyterians aren't, you know, because they're not in the true church. Well, that's to miss the point altogether. But Hogan, I think, was on to something. If, you know, if, this is what John says. If you're honestly a Christian, if you, know, if you have the love of God, you care for other people. You share, you care, you, 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 you have compassion. And it seems to me that, and, and this goes right to the point that both of you made practice practice. It's, it can't be just theory. It can't be just theology. So grace then becomes embodied grace. It's not grace, you know, God saved me from my sins and gee whiz, I'm going to go to heaven when I die. You know, it's a, you get out of jail free card. You know, get out of hell free card, like Monopoly or something. It's not disembodied grace. It's embodied grace. And 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 both of you have helped me, help move me further down the road understanding this. I think I saw some of it, but you can help me understand these things more deeply that grace is not cheap grace it's embodied grace it's when we extend the grace God has given to us to our neighbors no matter who they are doesn't make any difference and we may think we're unworthy we're unworthy too we're all unworthy so we extend grace to our neighbors